We're really still in Daniel. And as I was praying about what God wanted me to preach on for Father's Day, I was struck with Daniel. And who is Daniel? Well, Daniel happens to be a descendant of King Hezekiah. And it's a fulfillment of what Isaiah said there in verse 20, excuse me, verse 18. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hmm. It's interesting as we compare this, if we turn to the right to Second uh, Chronicles for a moment, we, we discover something else here. In Second in Chronicles, uh, right after Hezekiah has been delivered, we discover on page 722 in 2 uh, Chronicles 32:24. In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him miraculous sign. But Hezekiah's heart was proud and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem, then Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart, as did the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. Now, I want you to turn with me next to the first chapter of the book of Daniel, because we've been considering Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Who was Daniel? Well, if we go to chapter 1 of Daniel, we discover something. That's page 1369. If you look at Daniel 1.3, it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. So this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet said was going to happen. Now I find it strange. Uh, as one who reads Hebrew and reads Greek, I'm struck that the word translated court official in verse 3 is exactly the same word that's used in Second Chronicles and in First Kings to describe eunuchs. It's the Hebrew word saris, saris, saris. Yeah, they were court officials, but they were gelding court officials. What is a gelding? Sometimes people ask me, what do you do in your work for presbytery as a facilitator? And I said, well, if you think back to the days of the Presbyterian Church, the mainstream Presbyterian Church, the main line, they had what were called executive presbyters. And those executive presbyters had a lot of power. So I sometimes describe myself as a gelding executive presbyter because I have no power. <laughs> I have no authority. I just have the power of persuasion. My job working for presbytery is to visit churches in two-thirds of the state of Texas, North Arkansas, and excuse me, northern Louisiana and southern Arkansas. And when I go and visit, my job is to try to help them stay out of trouble. So tax laws and other things I have to be up on. So, geldings. Geldings are animals that have been castrated. And why would court officials in the ancient world, 
and even in modern times in certain countries, why would court officials be castrated? Well, I'll tell you the number one reason, aside from the harem uh, in the Persian Empire that you read about in the book of Esther, it is because a man has ambition for his children. A father wants to promote his children. A father wants to promote his children. Think, for example, of the successor to the Roman Empire, the Roman Catholic Church. For a long time, pastors married, bishops married, but then people began to realize, you know, these guys get ambitious. And so they passed a rule. In the Orthodox churches, that is the, the churches associated in, with the Middle East and Russia and Ukraine and others, priests could still marry today, but they wouldn't let their bishops marry. But in the Roman church, it was all outlawed because they knew what fathers were going to do. Fathers naturally look out for their children. And they want to promote their children. They want to make sure their children are safe and secure. And so the Roman church, unlike the ancient world, which castrated these people, uh, didn't castrate them. They just outlawed it. Maybe it would have been better off if they had followed the ancient pattern. Hmm. Wow. So... Who is Daniel in Daniel chapter 1? He comes under the authority of the, this court official, of the chief of the court officials. So this is a saris, saris. And I think about that and I think, well, that would be sorry, sorry. So anyhow, Daniel comes under his authority. And you see, they bring in, uh, in verse 3, some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were in enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah. Daniel, my judge is God, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now Daniel is there being trained to be one of these saris, or the Hebrew plural, sarasim, plural. And he's a eunuch. But I want to tell you, if you look at the life of Daniel, this man who was physically incapable of having children was a father in an unprecedented way to kings and to leaders. He was a protector of all those he was responsible for because the fundamental task of a father is protection and provision. Protection and provision. And if you want to find someone who was an, a, a wonderful example of a father, it's Daniel, who never had children. But he used his position 
even though he's a eunuch, he used his position to protect particularly the Israelite people. He's always looking out for them. That's why he is chosen of all of the prophets of Israel and Judah. Daniel is chosen to to be given the revelation of the future of the Jewish people going down not only to the time of Jesus, but even after that to the time of the very end of the age. So Daniel is a remarkable man. Daniel is more of a father than Hezekiah is. Why would I say that? Do you remember the words of Hezekiah? Look at them in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter uh, 37. And, And we, excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 39. And we discover again in verse 5, page 1,018, 1,118, I'm sorry. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace, all your fathers are stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And so on down. And some of your own descendants, your own flesh and blood will be born to you, be taken away, and they will become eunuchs. Saracen, or Saris, the singular. They will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now look at the next verse. What a terrible father. What a terrible father. Hezekiah was an awful father. He was a very selfish man. Do you remember his crying out to God? Lord, help me, I'm about to die. And he begs God, please don't let me die now. I want to live longer. Well, sure, he lived high on the hog. Nope, high on the lamb, high on the goat, not high on the hog. He lived well. He was a very successful king. He built great things. He protected God's people from Sennacherib's invasion. He stopped up the water supplies outside the wall and diverted them through a tunnel. That's an amazing thing. I've seen that tunnel, parts of it, and diverted the water inside the city so that the people could withstand a siege. What a wonderful man. Now he has fulfilled his time in life. And Isaiah's told him, put your house in order because you're going to die. And he said, oh, no, please, God, please, please, please just let me live longer. And God granted him 15 more years. Do you know what happened during those 15 years? He was not a gelding. He produced the worst king in the history of Judah, Manasseh. Wow. During that time of his extended life. And then notice after that, of course, people come to congratulate him. They'd heard about the amazing miracle when the sun had moved on the sundial of Ahaz backwards. That story had traveled all the way north to Babylon, to Assyria. And they were very intrigued. Wow, this must be an amazing man that his God caused the sun to move backwards as proof that he was going to be healed. Wow. So they came to congratulate him and he showed everything. And then he's told, here's your legacy. Some of your kids are going to end up in the palace of the king of Babylon and they will be castrated and serve him there. But now look at verse 8. Isaiah 39, 8. 
The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Let that sink in for a moment. There's several things wrong with that. First thing is wrong is that he has a secular view of history. History is just constantly changing back and forth, swinging this way, then that way. Good times, bad times, good times, bad times. Instead of a linear view of history. What do I mean by a linear view of history? While history may have pendulum swings, good kings, bad kings, good presidents, bad presidents. History is going somewhere. History has an omega point. And that omega point is the Lord Jesus Christ. God is involved in history, directing history according to his purpose to bring it to a termination. This cycle is not the way history really is. Those cycles occur within the plan of God that have a direct goal to get somewhere. That's the first error of the man's thinking. But the other thing is this, and I just can't imagine it. How can you be a father and say in verse 8, there will be peace and security in my lifetime? I don't care what the stock market does. I'm old. You know, I got enough to live on. Who cares about those that come after me? Is that the way a father should think? No, it isn't. But let me give you in the Gospel of Matthew another contrast with fathers. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And I'm struck with this. Let's look, first of all, at Matthew 27, 25, page 1547. Here's an example of people's anger and bitterness driving them to call a curse down on their own children. Can you imagine it? Have you ever gotten so angry over something that you spoke rashly and said, I don't care. I don't want to happen, care what happens to my children. I just want it. You ever been mad like that? Have you ever been so focused on yourself that you didn't care about your posterity? Hezekiah was that way, wasn't he? Well, at least... I'll have my stock portfolio will survive this. At least there'll be enough in Social Security till I die. Forget those people after me. That's Hezekiah. But look at this. Look at Matthew 27 and verse 25. What's the background of this? The background of this is the trial of Jesus. Pontius Pilate, a Roman official, the governor governing Judea, has just been presented with Jesus. And he realizes that this man is an innocent man. He realizes that there's no cause to indict him, much less a cause to kill him. And he has a secret message given to him by his wife. She She says to him, have nothing to do with that just man. Look at verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Wow. So he's getting a warning. 
from his wife. Good husbands heed their wives' warnings. And never forget, it takes a team to raise a child. If you're a single mom, you need your church. Because it's impossible to raise a child without the support of men. Because God designed men to be protectors and providers. Now here is Herod. I mean, excuse me. Here is Pontius Pilate. His wife has sent him a note. Don't bring blood guilt on yourself. You don't want blood on your head. You know, one of the things that God curses nations for is the shedding of innocent blood. January 22nd. 1973. One of the things that God judges a civilization for is the shedding of innocent blood. She says, don't have anything to do with that innocent man for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Can God speak through dreams? Of course he can. There's only one infallible standard of truth. That's the Bible. But God can warn you through a dream. Something that you're toying with in your mind about doing? Well, I wonder what it would be like. Sometimes God will reveal to you exactly what it'll be like. Wow. In a dream. But dreams don't take the place of the Bible. They don't supplement the Bible. The Bible is a complete book. But God can apply the Word of God when you're sitting in a a picture show though he's far more likely to apply God's word as you gather with God's people on the Lord's day. So, what does Pilate do? He tries to get him released. He tries this, he tries that, Barabbas, whatnot. They all shouted, all the louder, crucify him. Look at verse 24, Matthew 27, 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere... But instead, an uproar was was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. Have you ever wondered how many expressions in our language come from the Bible? Wow, I wash my hands of this. I'm just washing my hands of it. You know, what a politician. I mean, Pilate was a politician. He didn't want to do what was wrong, but he wasn't willing to do what was right. And so he makes a great show of it. I'm innocent of this man. Look at what he says. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. Notice blood. You know, the Bible is a book about blood from beginning to end. Why is it important? Because the shedding of blood is how sins are forgiven. And the shedding of blood is also how guilt and curses come down on individuals, families, nations, civilizations. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. Now look at their response. All the people answered, let his blood be on us. And then they said nothing else. Is that right? What do they say? His blood be on us and on our children. What a dreadful curse. They called down a curse on their own children. 
Imagine that as I see Sam and Marissa here today and little Theo who I can't, I mean not Theo, and little Iona whom I cannot see. Imagine that they would ever say something like that. Let this guilt fall on us and on Iona. Wow. Let this guilt fall on us. Now let me say something about curses. Curses are real. The power of life and death is in the tongue. And they who love it will eat its fruit. Is there a blood curse on people today? And the answer to that is yes and no. The Bible says a curse without a cause will not alight. If the Jewish people remain in unbelief, then that curse is still on them. That's not a popular thing to say. It's not a reason for us ever to be unfriendly to Jewish people. We should always be protectors of Jewish people. Jewish people, we pray, will one day come back to God wholesale in mass and trust in Him. But as long as a Jewish person is in unbelief, the curse on them in this life is greater than the curse on other people because of their ancestors. Those are harsh words, aren't they? They sound terrible. Do you really believe that's true today? I'll ask you this. What people in the history of the world, from the day of Christ's rejection in roughly 30 AD, has suffered greater than this group of people? So, well, they're back in the land. I, I know history. I don't know the future. Will they remain in the land? You know that Israel succeeded in going back into the land under Simon Bar Kokhba. And in my meager coin collection, I have a silver coin minted by the Jewish people in the second century under Simon Bar Kokhba. Simon Bar Kokhba. They rebelled against Rome. They set up a Jewish kingdom in Israel and even minted coins. Where is it today? Will what happened in 1948 fare any better than that of Simon Bar Kokhba? I don't know. Do you know? Nobody knows. The point is that they call down a blood curse on their own children's heads. And the moment someone repents of his ancestral pattern of sin and puts his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that curse is broken. So, Jewish people are not under a curse if they accept the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. But without that, that blood curse comes down through the centuries, even today. His blood be on us and on our children. Now I want you to see something else. We're talking about fathers. And I want you to look across the page on page 1548. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to think of those words as we turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Because is there a better father than our heavenly father? And the answer to that is no. And who is the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal son of the eternal God. In his humanity, he was adopted, as were all the ancient kings of Israel, to be the son of God with power. That was a title of ancient kings. But in his deity, he has always existed. There never was a time that Jesus didn't exist because he was always in the bosom of his father. He had eternal fellowship with the Holy Spirit and the Father. Look here at verse 34 on page 1641. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And then look in the next column, verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. So I want you to think with me just for a moment. It seemed like God the Father in the crucifixion of Jesus was being like the Jewish people themselves, saying his blood be on us and on our children, was being like Hezekiah and saying, well, at least I'll have peace and security. But that's not really the case. What he did is an example of what a father sometimes has to do. And that is, he has to allow his child to feel abandoned. What? Well, isn't that exactly what Jesus is experiencing here? Jesus is experiencing the abandonment of his father. Hebrew, it's Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, as over against the Aramaic that Matthew records. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to say this. Parents who are never willing to allow their children to feel abandoned are poor parents. How could you possibly say that? Well, Jesus felt abandoned on the cross, didn't he? But before he dies, he cries out and accepts the fact that he knows the Father's love. Of the Father's love begotten. Ere before the worlds began. He's always been in the bosom of the Father. He knew God loved him. And yet he experienced this sense of abandonment. Why? Why did he experience that? He experienced that for a fundamental purpose. You and I would never be saved had God the Father not abandoned Jesus on the cross. We're saved by God the Father abandoning him. That's why he screams, Eli! Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words from the 22nd Psalm. Did he feel abandoned? Of course he felt abandoned. Jesus felt abandonment just like you and I sometimes feel abandoned by God. Have you ever gone through a trial in your life? He said, God, where are you in this trial? 
Did God actually abandon Jesus? Yes, but only for a moment. Only when he took your sins and my sins on himself and was the sin bearer as he was crucified. But deep down inside, Jesus is comforted. He's buoyed up by the reality that he knows the Father's love, who will never abandon him. In a practical application, what am I saying? Overindulgent parents will never allow their children to experience the consequences of their behavior. Think about raising a child. What do we do when children are little? We give them a swat. A little child reaching up to touch the gas stove. Have you ever had a child try to touch the top of a stove? If you allow the child to do it, are you a good parent? Of course not. What you do is to impose a little pain in order that the child learns, don't do that. That's very dangerous. That's very bad. You're going to hurt yourself. Just like I hurt myself as I reached in to pull some salmon that we were cooking Thursday night and touched this knuckle to the rail of the oven. You don't want your child to get burned. You want that child to experience an artificial consequence. But what happens when a child gets older? What happens when a child is taken off to jail? You ever had a child arrested? I have. What do you do? Do you abandon them completely? Of course not. But do you allow them to experience a little bit of the consequences of their own behavior? I submit to you, parents who want to protect their children from any and all consequences of bad behavior are not being good parents. We have to protect our children by allowing them, even as adults, to understand this kind of behavior is going to destroy me. So that's a Father's Day meditation. And it's kind of taken on from Daniel himself, who is an amazing picture of a father, even though he could never have children. But the ultimate picture of a father is our Father, our Heavenly Father, who will never really abandon us, who will always protect us, but will allow us to go through trials and tribulations for our sanctification and growth. And if He did that for His beloved Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, if He did that for the Lord Jesus Christ, but still loved Him in the middle of His trial, rest assured in the Father's love. Because on Father's Day, we reflect on Him who is the pattern of all parenting in the entire universe, and that's God our Father. God our Father loves us. He protects us. But as part of that protective plan, He allows us to experience pain and abandonment because He has a good purpose for our lives. And again, never forget that when you experience that, it's not punishment because you're a sinner. Because Christ died for your sins. By His being abandoned in the moments He dies on the cross, you and I will never be abandoned in eternity. 
We're right with God solely by what Christ has done for us, not our own suffering, not our own virtue. May we pray. Lord, please take this message, a meditation on the life of Daniel, a man who could not have children, contrasted with his ancestor, King Hezekiah, who said, well, at least I'll have peace and security in my lifetime. Lord, contrast it again with people who in their rage, having a cuss fit, call down your wrath not only on themselves, but their own children. And seeing at the very end, the love of the Father causes the Son in His dying breath to call out and say, Father, forgive them. And also to pray, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. May we throughout the course of life be such people. For Jesus' sake, amen.